Well, as a dad of two young kids, you probably catch me talking about them a lot. You probably heard me say things about them like Eden's so cute and Jordan is so small and that's because I believe both of those things are very true. Uh, in fact, those two things kind of go together because when uh, Jordan was born this November, it really showed me how big Eden was. Not that she's a big person because she's actually a really tiny person. She's that small little girl you'll see running around who's got a bald head and a headband on. And actually when we started this series, she was just learning to walk. And that was actually my opening illustration for the first sermon in this series was Eden just took her first steps. Now, if you see Eden, it's only been a month and a half and she's running everywhere. She can run uh, basically as fast as anybody else that I know uh, based on her size because uh, she just runs like crazy and she's just growing up really fast. I know you probably hear parents say that about their kids, but it's really true. And when I look at my son Jordan, who's just a month old, who's a really tiny little guy, I realize that actually he's the same size that Eden was last year. The only thing that's different about them is that, that Eden has had a whole year to grow and to develop and Jordan is just a newborn baby. Uh, and in a year, hopefully, he's going to be at the same spot she is. Hopefully, he's going to be active. Hopefully, he'll be able to walk and maybe not just walk. Maybe he'll be running in a year. Who knows? In fact, it would actually be tragic if he wasn't able to do those things. It'd be tragic not now because he's just a little one, year, one month old, but when he was a year old, it would be tragic if he doesn't grow up uh, unless something happens, right? And again, there could be something that happens this year where you know, maybe he has some kind of uh, problem or some kind of injury where he can't walk in the same way that Eden can. But in the normal course of events, it would be tragic if he doesn't grow up to be like her in all of her maturity at 13 months old. The reason I say all this is because you and I are both in a similar spiritual danger. Here's the danger, that many people in this room are new Christians, baby Christians, but the danger for us is that we get saved, but we never take steps of obedience. And the real danger is that we don't grow up, that we stay infants in Christ. And the Bible warns us all over the place, be careful that you don't stay an infant in Christ. You need to start taking steps of obedience and growing up in the faith. That's what Paul's going to tell these Ephesians today. So if you've got a Bible, please turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. We're actually starting in the middle of a sentence, which we don't normally do. The reason we're doing that in Ephesians 4 here is because uh, last time we were together, which was uh, in the book of Ephesians, it was a few weeks back because it was before our Christmas series, we, we talked about how Jesus is the king who gives his church all these amazing gifts. And Ephesians 4 describes how Jesus is like a conquering king who takes over, and as he goes to sit on his throne, he starts handing out gifts to his people. And he starts to describe what those gifts are, and it kind of shocked me, and maybe it shocked you, to find out that the thing that Jesus thought was most necessary for the church was not a lot of money, it wasn't health, it wasn't wealth. The thing that he thought was necessary for the church was that he would give the church leaders. That's why in verse 11, you can see it in your Bible, it says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So those five groups of people, um, he gave those people to the church to do something. Now, we ended it there because we're saying, hey, next time we get together, we're going to discuss the reason he gave these gifts. Today, in verse 12, we're going to talk about why he gave leaders to the church. Look at what verse 12 says. It says, he gave these leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So you could summarize everything that we're going to talk about right now right there in that little phrase. That God chose to give us, the church, leaders, specifically the apostles and prophets, and we have their words now in the scriptures, and he gave the evangelists, those are people who go into a new place and plant a church, and then he gave the shepherds and teachers, those are the pastors of the church. The reason he gave those to the church is so that we would be equipped. We, and the reason I say we, is you see the word saint there in verse 12? The word saint is not talking about some special class of Christians. The word saint just means holy one, and it's a reference to all Christians. So what this is saying is, Jesus thought it was a good idea to give the church leaders where he would use those leaders to equip all of us to do the work of the ministry. Now, that might challenge your thinking because a lot of us assume and we think that the people who do ministry are the pastors. The people who do ministry are the small group leaders. I don't have to do ministry. I'm the one that ministry is done to. I'm not the one doing ministry. And ministry, by the way, is just another word for service, okay? Christian service is what we're talking about. That's what ministry. We think sometimes that we're not responsible for it, but this text, read it again, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Do you see right there that this text says that every saint has a role in ministry? Every last one of us. If we're in Christ, we have a job to do. 
Look what he describes next. He says, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's another way to describe this. When he gives the, the saints, these leaders and these gifted people, the point is that they're supposed to be equipped to do service. And what does the service do? Well, the service builds up the body of Christ. The body of Christ is an analogy to talk about the church. So he's saying he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip all of us to do ministry, which ends up doing something else. It builds the church. That's God's design. He could have done it a lot of different ways, but this is how he decided to do it. Verse number 13 says, until... So all this goes on until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's a big sentence with a lot included, but here's what he's saying. The goal for each and every church, and my goal for you as your pastor, when I pray for you, you know what I always pray for you, is that you would be built up to be like Christ. My job is not done until you are living like Christ. My job's not done until you attain to the unity of the faith. What does that mean? It means that we, as a church, believe the same thing about Jesus. We believe the same thing. The faith is another, it's a phrase used in the New Testament. It's used in Jude 3 to talk about the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So we're talking about the body of knowledge that all of us are supposed to have in church, which is why, by the way, do you notice the thing that we do at church a lot is we sit and we hear and we take notes and we look at our Bibles and we look at our notes. What are we doing? We're teaching. Some people are like, man, it kind of feels like a class sometimes. Yeah, that's because that's what it feels like occasionally when you're learning. That's how it is because that's the role that God has given the church. We attain to the unity of the faith. We believe the same thing. And then the knowledge of the Son of God. Right, really, this isn't complete just because maybe you're really smart and you know a lot of things about the Bible. That's not the ultimate end-all, be-all. The end-all, be-all is that you would personally know Jesus Christ better. And I'm not just talking about knowing him in the sense of you get saved and you know him because you're saved. That's amazing. But he's talking about something more than that. He's saying that you would grow in your relationship with Christ so much so that it'd be like you telling someone else, yeah, I know that person, I know that person, I know Christ. I know what he's like. I know what he would think. I know what he would say in these situations. That's like the goal. That might feel like a high goal because he says to, to, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, which um, is another analogy he's giving. It's like saying um, you want to grow up to be as tall as Christ or you fill in to big shoes. It's that kind of analogy or it's a spatial analogy. He's saying he wants us all to be like Christ so much so that every part of our life looks like him. Verse number 14 says the thing that we're trying to avoid is that we be no longer children. It says we don't want to be children anymore, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That verse is saying uh, the goal for you and my goal for you as your pastor and for you to be a, a saint here in this church is that you would not be tossed to and fro by everything you hear about God. Or that you wouldn't open up your phone, see things that people say about God on Instagram or on TikTok, and that you would just believe everything you hear. One of my goals for you is that you could see what the world says about God, and you could be wise enough to discern what's true, what's false, and why. What does the Bible say about this topic? What does the Bible say about that? You might hear someone teach from the Bible, and it looks like they're teaching the Bible, but you might find out as you're listening, wait a minute, they're not saying what the Bible really says. They're twisting the Bible to make it say what they want it to say. I want you guys to be strong enough and mature enough to be able to do that. Why do I want that for you? Because that's what this text says. That's the goal for all of us Christians. We don't want to be carried away by every doctrine. That's a reference to just teaching about God. But he says not just teaching about God. Also, don't be tossed to and fro by human cunning. That's another phrase that basically means that you wouldn't buy into every philosophy, every philosophy or every philosophical system that the world throws at you. There's a lot of philosophical systems that the world uses uh, that they don't always present it this way, but they stand behind a lot of the statements. Uh, philosophical systems like postmodernism, which is the idea that your truth is different than my truth. And that there's no universal truth. We all just kind of live our own truths. Uh, you hear that all the time. But it's, that's called postmodernism. It's a it's a crafty, clever philosophy that's unbiblical. You also might hear things like romanticism, which romanticism is a philosophy that basically says what's going to be best for you is for you to follow your heart, for you to do whatever you want to do. That will satisfy you. That will make you happy. That's a, that's a philosophical system. Right? We don't say that all the time, but we hear that all the time. My goal for you is that you could be able to cut through all the noise and be able to say what's true, 
What's false? What does the Bible say about that? And then it says in craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's just people lying to you. There are a lot of well-manufactured lies about God, about the world, about you, about who you are, about your sexuality, about what you should like, what you shouldn't like. There's a lot of well-crafted lies that he says, look, I want every Christian to be able to see through that, to be mature enough to say, I know what's true and I know what's false. Well, how does that happen? Verse 15 is the answer. Everybody, get your, te- get your eyes in the text. It says, rather, speaking the truth in love. That's the way that we can do this. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So that's the goal. We're speaking the truth in love. You know, uh, the word speaking is actually not in the Greek text. It's not there. Uh, It's a good word to put in here because I think it explains what he's trying to get at. But the word is actually the word truth turned into a verb. He says, but instead of listening to everything and believing everything we hear and being gullible about God, he says we should truth in love. Truthing is, is actually the word. Truthing in love. Instead of that, we should be truthing in love. That looks like telling the truth. That looks like speaking God's truth into each other's lives. That looks like sometimes providing confrontation for people in our lives that are in sin. That's truthing in love. It's being able to know what's true and what's false. It also means that you're able to share the truth with people that don't know the truth. Some immature Christians that you're going to talk to, or maybe a lot of non-Christians you're going to talk to, for you to be able to share the truth in love, that's how we fight against this mentality of just being tossed to and fro by the waves. Verse 16 says, um, after it says, into Christ, it says, from whom the whole body is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. So it's like Jesus holds the body, the church body, together, and he's using an analogy, like he's got joints, and he's got tendons, and ligaments, and muscles. It's like Jesus is the one who pulls us all together, and look what it says next, which it is equipped, when each part, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So when you are doing what you need to do as a Christian, and when I'm doing what I need to do as a Christian, and we're interacting together, guess what? That is God's plan to grow you in Christ and to grow me in Christ. That's God's plan. He could have done it a lot of different ways, but that's how he chose it, that you and I would truth with one another. We'd be truthing in love, that we'd share the truth. That's why, again, like I said, a lot of what we do at church is sharing the truth in love. It's sitting down in small groups and talking about God's truth. It's sitting down in a sermon and listening to God's truth. It's us singing songs to the Lord that are contained full of truth about God. Right? We're, we're people all about the truth because God is all about the truth, and that's what he decided. This passage is a great one for us to look at at the beginning of the year because it sets some standards. It sets some ways that we need to set for goals for us this year. I want all of us to commit and say, this year, I am going to mature. This year, I am going to grow up. And even as I said at the beginning, some of us are going to college. Some of us are going into the workforce this year. Others of us are moving away from home. Some of you will be gone for months at a time in the summertime or in the fall. This is the time to grow up in Christ. We don't have much more time. It's not like we can say, well, wait till next year or wait till the year after that. No, it's time right now to be grown up in Christ and to keep growing. I want you to commit to that. The first step in all this is point number one. It comes from verse 12 and verse 16. It's a radical statement that says the church is made up of people who are supposed to work at church. Not all people who are paid, but people who are supposed to see their responsibility in ministry. Point number one, I'd love for you to write this down. Realize that you have a role in ministry. Realize that you have a role in ministry. Some people think that the only people that have roles in ministry are the people who work at the church, the people who are the pastors, the people who are small group leaders. Those are not the only people who have a role in ministry. If you're a Christian, the Bible is very, very clear. You have a role. Be sad for us, be tragic for us to not step up into that role. That's what I want to warn us against this morning. Reminds me of this last week, we're on vacation, and we went to a bunch of different places to eat. You know, when you're on vacation, your parents might say, hey, you know, we should try this new place or this new place. Well, my wife and I were in Vista, California, and my parents were in Escondido, and they said, you should meet us down in Escondido for this really cool barbecue place. And we're like, okay, cool, let's go. And, you know, I'm assuming this is a place my mom has looked up, and maybe it's maybe a food network channel, you know, something. I don't know. I was expecting good things, right? We, we roll up, right? It's not the greatest uh, neighborhood. It was not the greatest place. Uh, the sign was like half broken off. Some of the letters were missing. Uh, I, I shouldn't even tell you what this place is called, but 
you know, you'll find it if you look up barbecue in Escondido, and, and you find which one's really sketchy looking. So anyway, we, we walk up, and I'm like, should we even try it? And then we're like, you know what? We got the babies. We got Jordan. We got Eden. It was my mom and dad and my wife and I. I'm like, okay, let's, whatever. Let's just go. We're here. We walk in. Right? There are two people that work in this place. There is like one person eating. There's no music on. There's these big like house fans that are on the side kind of blowing air. It was like, looked like it had not been decorated since maybe 1963. Uh, the place, ha- <laughs> this sounds bad, but um, the bathroom. Where was the bathroom? It wasn't like at the front or in the back. No, no, the bathroom was in the kitchen. So if you want to go to the bathroom, it was fun, like, just go back there. You'd walk into the kitchen as they're preparing the food. The big fryer is right next to you, and you got, you know, the, the door, and you walk in the bathroom, and then you walk in the bathroom, and you got bars on the windows. Like, people have been trying to break in, cobwebs everywhere. Like, where are we, right? So the food was okay, by the way. It was, it was, it was okay. It wasn't bad, right? It was very, like, homey. My pulled pork sandwich did kind of taste like cigarettes, so that was kind of... That wasn't great. Your what? Your beef was like uh, it's pretty dry. Yeah, it was. And we tried to you know suffer through it. We're like, oh man, I don't want to say anything bad. My mom chose this place. She probably feels really bad. Um, but we got to the end, and this is maybe a, a situation you've been in before, where you get to the end of the meal, and you got your plates there. You got your silver. It's very cafeteria-like, you know, camp style. You know, it's really thin forks and, and the plates that have like different sections on them. It looked like jail food, right? Um, <laughs> And you get to the end and you think, okay, um, is this one of those places where they clean up? Or is this one of those places that I have to clean up myself? Right? And we're like, well, there's only two people working. There's literally the guy who's making the food and the lady at the front register. And, I, and nobody was there, really. It was just us and maybe a couple other people. They literally had like the office playing on like a micro 90s TV in the room. It was, it was kind of a throwback. But... Uh, Anyway, we get to that moment, like, should we clean up? Should we not clean up? I'm like, whatever, let's just clean up. So we start cleaning up, right? And, and you were scraping our things into the, the trash can, and we're, like, cleaning the table. Like, literally, like, this is, like, Pondo, right? This is a camp. This is, like, junior high camp, right? And we're, we're cleaning it up, and the lady's like, no, 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 I can do that. I would have done that. I'm like, dude, you're the only person working. How, you know, you're the cashier, but whatever. She was going to do that. Um, but anyway, if you had that awkward moment, you're at a place, and you're like, is this a place where I clean up, or they come over and clean up? I feel that at Urban Plates all the time, you know? urban plates it's like am I supposed to clean up am I supposed to take it over they're so like hipster that you don't even know maybe you're supposed to clean up maybe you can tell me later I don't know um, but if you go into that with the wrong mindset and think I'm, I'm going to go to a five-star restaurant the barbecue is going to be amazing it's going to be incredible I'm going to sit down there's going to be white tablecloths and if I went into that experience expecting something amazing I would have walked out extremely extremely disappointed but if I walked in that place thinking, man, this is like the home-style barbecue, you know, this is a $6 meal, so whatever, it's going to be awesome, um, I probably wouldn't have thought so poorly of it. But my problem was I had the wrong expectations going in. Um, when you go to church, I want you to think through what are your expectations from church. What do you think the church is going to do for you? The problem is we are so trained to think that church is going to be like a restaurant. Church is going to be like somewhere where everyone's going to come serve me, and then I can sit back, and they're going to take the plate, and you know, if I like it, I'll leave a good review on Yelp. If I don't like it, I'll be a Karen, and I'll just leave all these bad reviews on Yelp. You know, one star, terrible service, and uh, then you'll get out of there. The problem is that's not how church is. Church is actually designed much more like a meal that you had at Christmas time. Or maybe you and some friends and some family, you got together in someone's house and you made the food and you all spent time together in the kitchen and then you sat down and you had the meal and then afterwards you all got up and you didn't just leave it for one person to clean up because it was family. You thought, okay, we all got to pitch in here. Now it's time for us all to clean up. If you go into the church with the wrong expectation, it's going to be bad. Just like you got to expect the church to be like that household. You all have a role in cleaning up so to speak, or preparing the food, or or doing something. We all have a job to do. Even if you don't think you're the main person who's supposed to serve, or, you know, maybe you're in your small group, and it's like, well, my small group leader is the real leader. That's true. It's really on them, but ultimately, it's for every Christian to do ministry and to serve one another. Here's how I know that for certain. As this text says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. It doesn't say that they would do the work of the ministry that the saints are supposed to do the work of the ministry. If you think about our church, who does the majority of the ministry? In fact, it's actually not the pastors. The pastors train the rest of the church to do the work of the ministry. Who's doing the majority of the encouragement? Who's doing the majority of the accountability? Who's doing the majority of the small group leading? It's not the pastors. 
It's the saints. It's the people in our church that have been trained up to do it. And you need to see that's your role too. Even if you're not prepared yet to step into those leadership positions or to step into those service positions, your job is I need to be equipped to do it because that's what God calls me to do. The Bible makes this very clear. First Peter chapter four, verse 10. I'd love for you to write that down. First Peter 4, 10 says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So God gives different grace to you than he gives to me when it comes to service. We all get the same grace when it comes to salvation, right? If you're in Christ, you are just as saved as anyone else in Christ. Get the same grace there. But we receive different grace to serve the church. We receive different gifts, right? And and 1 Corinthians 12 calls them spiritual gifts, gifts that come from the spirit that equip you to serve the church, right? The gifts like encouragement, or helping, or administration, or teaching, or or even musical gifts, things like that that God gives to you, and they're meant for you to take them and use them in the church. They're not meant for you to, to, to boast and say, well, look how gifted I am. That was actually the problem with the Corinthians. A lot of them were gifted, and they spent all their time saying, wow, look at how great my gifts are. Look at how amazing my gifts are. And Paul has to tell them, stop. You don't even realize the point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, it's another good reference for you to write down. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So that's what their spiritual gifts are for, for the common good. You have some, I have some. If you're in Christ, you have them, and you will find more that you have as God continues to grow you. If you think, I'm not trained enough to minister, well, um, you need to start doing small acts of service, and God will continue to grow you. If you think, well, God doesn't expect anything of me right now. I'm just a high school student. Well, you just need to realize that God makes a pattern of using young people who are ready to be used by him. That's his pattern. Look in the Bible. How, how many old people does God use to do things? He uses some, like Moses, right? Moses was an old man. He was 80 when he led um, the Israelites out. But he primarily actually uses young people like David and like Mary and like Daniel and like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He uses these people, people like Esther, people like Ruth. He tends to use younger people who are ready to say, I'm ready to do whatever God wants me to do. So don't think that God has no expectations for you. He absolutely does. The question is, are you going to step up to do that? Are you going to step up to do point number one and say, I realize I have a role. You've got to find it. The big question I want you to ask is, are you taking your spiritual training right now seriously? That's the big question I want you to have for point number one. Am I taking my spiritual training seriously? If you go to our church and you're here as a regular, um, you get a lot of good teaching. If you go to another church and you go there regularly and you get good teaching, you're constantly being trained to do ministry. And the question for us is, what have you, what have I done with the investment that has been poured into me? It's crazy when you think about uh, these people who become firefighters or, or people in the military, how much like, the government will actually invest in each particular person and how there needs to be a good investment. So the idea is you want them to produce that in return. You want them to serve in such a way that, that makes them worthy of all the money that's being poured into them. I know that's kind of a weird way of thinking about this, but do you realize if you've been poured into a lot, you have a high level of responsibility? If you're a person who has been trained, if you have two Christian parents who both love the Lord and serve the Lord, do you understand you have actually a higher expectation on you? Jesus says, to whom much is given, much is expected. Stewards of God's very grace. Some are given 10, some are given five, some are given two of those talents. But however many talents you're given, however many gifts that God has given you to serve, you're expected to use them. If you're gifted more, you're actually expected to do more for him. The question of are you taking your biblical training seriously, I want to bring it home with a couple of other questions. Are you taking advantage of the sermons that you hear? Uh, we have notes and we have s- points and subpoints for a reason. We don't want you to just write them down and put them in a binder somewhere and never look at them. Even worse than that, we don't want you to take them and throw them away and forget about them. We really want you to look at these and maybe save these and use these. In fact, one of the practices I told you about on like the second week that we were together in True North is I like to keep my sermon notes, and I have all my sermon notes since I was in seventh grade, and I keep them in my office. And regularly, I'll go back and look at some things, and I'll say, hmm, I remember I heard a sermon when I was a ninth grader about this topic, and I'll go back and I'll try to look at the notes, right? And sometimes I'll think about things I heard in college, and I'll pull out my binders, and I'll say, where, where did I learn that, right? And then I try to go back and, and look at it. 
It's another good practice to take your notes and to take and, and flip them over, as you see on the back of the worksheet, those application questions to say, well, someone put these together so that I would grow. I should probably be doing them. Right? And that's what we do mainly in small groups, right? But this week, we don't have small groups. So my challenge for you is if you want to take your biblical training seriously, make sure you do those application questions. You don't have to do all of them at once. You could do them one day at a time. You could go Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You could do Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever. You could do one at a time. You could do them all at a time. But how seriously are you taking the gifts that you've been given? Some of you are taking Compass Bible Institute classes. Right? How seriously are you taking that? Are you just doing the homework and just doing it because it's a school assignment and you're just doing it? Or are you saying, this is God's truth that's eternal, unchanging, that I will be telling my grandkids about, if the Lord wills, so I should probably be paying close attention. Right? question is, how seriously are we taking our spiritual training? How seriously are we taking our daily Bible reading? How seriously are we taking our time in prayer? Or are we just kind of glossing over it? If you realize you have a role in ministry, and if you realize what I'm going to have to do is take what has been invested in me, and I'm going to have to take it and pour it out into someone else, we start to take all this a lot more seriously. Ministry role might be intimidating. You might think, man, I need to grow before I do that. I need to grow before I'm a small group leader. I need to grow before, you know, I'm, I'm leading a men's Bible study group as an old person or, you know, more than I'm leading a thrive group when I'm married. I, I mean, I got to do some serious work before that. That's true. Right? But that's, that's what this time is for right now. Paul says in verses 13 to 14, he does, I don't want you to be like little kids that are tossed to and fro in the waves. When I think about that, I imagine going to the ocean, taking a six-year-old who just learned how to swim, and you know they're a pretty good swimmer, and taking them and saying, why don't you go boogie boarding at the wedge in Newport Beach? Do you know what the wedge is at the Newport Beach? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a literally like wedge it's right next to the jetty, right, where it all comes in in these big waves. You should look it up on YouTube later. They're huge waves. You, you take a six-year-old, you take an eight-year-old, and like, I can boogie board. It's like, yeah, you boogie board at like 1,000 steps. Uh, or you boogie board at you know, Laguna Main Beach. Like you're a tourist. Or you don't even know what a good beach is. Um, and you just oh, do it there. Well, you're going to have some problems if you uh, take that to the wedge. And the point is, that's the picture of a person who goes and lives their life in the world and is not mature enough to understand truth from error. Right? And sadly, Realistically, if we brought this home to us here in True North, that's the picture of many of us in this room. We're like children tossed to and fro in the waves. We hear things about God, but we don't have the maturity or the understanding or the discernment enough to know what's true and what's false. So some, some of us are gullible. Remember that old line you used in elementary school? Gullible is written on the ceiling. You ever, you ever use that on somebody? Yeah, exactly. Or you went snipe hunting with somebody? You ever gone snipe hunting? You're so mean. Has anyone taken anyone's snipe hunting in here? Okay, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. The bullies, that's right. You know that's all leaders that raise their hand? Not a single student. <laughs> Speak the truth. That's coming later in the sermon. But um, how many of you have been taken snipe hunting? Like you were the, the innocent victim, right? Okay, again, I don't believe you. That's only two or three people. I, I have been on a snipe hunting adventure. Do you know what snipe hunting is? Nobody, oh, well, I'm not gonna tell you then. Uh, can I ruin it for everybody? Yeah, okay. Snipe hunting is like a thing that people do at camp where they take you out to the woods to try to find imaginary creatures called snipes. They're not real. You can't find them out there. And then they're like, oh, I saw one. And then the whole group's in on it. And like one person doesn't know. Right? This was a very classic like old school camp thing. Um, I did it in like fifth or sixth grade. My leaders took me snipe hunting. I lost so much respect for them. I'm like so mad. Like, you lied to me. Uh, because I was gullible. Guess what? I'll never go snipe hunting again. You want to take me snipe hunting? I'm not going to be like, oh, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. No, I'm like, mm, I can take you snipe hunting if you want, but I'm not, I'm not going snipe hunting. I know I, I see through the joke. Because guess what? In that small little area, I'm not gullible, and now you aren't either. Congratulations. No, no one here is gullible in that area anymore. That's what it means to be immature, is to be gullible. Right? Mature people, they're less gullible. Uh, point number two, I want you to gain the skills to discern truth from error. I want you to gain the skills that you need to discern truth from error. Uh, you're given like a, like a chicken salad sandwich every day where there's a lot of different ingredients and they all kind of blend together and it takes a certain level of a filter. It takes a certain level of discernment to know what's true and what's not true. You know, there are actually people in the Bible, and this might surprise you, there are people in the Bible who are Christians who are called out for not being mature enough. In 1 Corinthians 3, 
Paul calls a group of Christians immature. He calls them children. He says, you guys are just like infants. I wish I could tell you more. I wish I, I could have you grow more, but you guys haven't even gotten past the simple basic uh, truths of not being a divided church. He says that there, but also in Hebrews chapter 5, I want us all to turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Look at this real quick. It's an interesting statement. The author of Hebrews writes about this church and about these Christians, and he says, look, I have a lot that I would talk to you guys about, but I can't even do it yet. It's just interesting. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Check it out. Hebrews 5, 11. He just is about to talk about like something that's super hard to understand, these Old Testament types and pictures of Melchizedek, who was a king, and ultimately that's not even why I'm turning to this. The reason is he goes on a little sidebar here and he says, look, verse 11, about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Okay? These are Christians who believe Jesus is the Messiah. Many of them have turned from their sins. They've repented. They've put their faith in Jesus. Many of these people are Christians. But he says, for though by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So these are Christians. Just, I, just imagine this. It's like these are Christians who hear God's word and they maybe hear sermons and maybe they go to small groups and they do all these things. But he says, I can't even talk to you about the hard stuff yet because you guys are still on the milk. The way that this, I think, manifests itself today is that people today, some of us, are so interested in relearning the same 10 verses that make us feel good, but we're unwilling to say, I'm going to take this study to the next level and start understanding who God is. I'm afraid to read through the Bible in the year because, you know, Leviticus sounds kind of hard, and you know, I don't really know what's going on in the book of Numbers. Is that just a bunch of people's phone numbers? Like, I'm just, I don't want to do it, right? It just seems like too much work. Well, to you, the author of Hebrews would say the same thing. Do you understand that if you're doing that and you're unwilling to go deeper, you, you're a person living on the milk? You haven't even made it to the solid food yet? Look at verse 13. It says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. Right? That's true for um, my kids. Right? They, they started on milk. Right? They go from milk and then they go to whole milk and then they can start having um, regular people food, um, but only soft food because they don't have many teeth. Um, he says the same thing's true in Christianity, same thing's true in studying about God. If you don't know the word of righteousness, you're unskilled like a child. But look at verse 14. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Do you know how much practice you have? Do you know how much opportunities you have every day to distinguish good from evil? I mean, I want you to imagine, you just take what people say about themselves, about their lives, about who they are, and just say, what does the Bible say about that statement right there? You don't have to do it with them. You don't have to like, you know, put everyone on blast who says something wrong. I'm just talking about in your own heart. I'm just talking about maybe in a journal. I'm just talking about maybe on a Word document and starting to write down, man, this is what they said. What does the Bible say about that? Because I know maybe there's something wrong with that, but I don't really know yet, right? You understand the more you can do that, and the more you can think, and I know that's the hard part of all this, it requires us thinking and, and giving some concentrated effort. Because the more you can do that, then you're going to get skilled to distinguish good from evil. Nobody starts out that way. None of us start out that way. But we have to do that. That helps us grow. By the way, look at verse number one of the next chapter. He goes just as the next couple words. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. <laughs> so what's the basics? What's the gospel, right? The gospel, what's the gospel? Well, it's that we know who God is. We recognize him as Lord. We recognize he's holy, just, and loving. We recognize that we've fallen short, the bad news of sin, and the good news that Jesus is God. He came to live a perfect life in our place, die on the cross, rise again to defeat death, and he calls us to repent from our sins, that means turn, and put our faith in Jesus, that means trust in him. He says that's like the basics, right? And those are good things. So he's not saying the basics aren't good things, right? Don't, don't hear this saying, man, there's like good truth about God and then there's like better truth about God. That's not what I'm saying, right? The gospel is really the best truth, but he says that's the elementary doctrines. It's like you need someone to teach you the gospel again, right? You should be moving on to even more than that. You should understand even more than just the gospel. Not that the gospel is not important. It's the most important. But he says for these Christians, he couldn't even move past that with them. The powers of discernment being trained by constant practice. It's like this. I have, I've told you this before. I have a very bad palate. I, I'm not good with tastes. I'm not good with, you know, the scene in Ratatouille 
where he has the cheese and he goes off into some like psychedelic experience in the cheese. You know what I'm talking about? Um, I can't do that. Most cheese, not all cheese, but most of it tastes the same to me. Like last night I was at this New Year's Eve thing and there was a charcuterie board. And for me, charcuterie boards are made up of three items. Crackers, cheese, and meat. Okay? And the meat, you know how it's like, oh, pepperoni. Oh, this is salami. Oh, this is Italian sausage. Or this, it's like, dude, all of it tastes the same. You put those three ingredients together, the cracker, the cheese, and like, oh, the cheese is like, it's white cheese or it's yellow cheese. You know it almost all tastes the same. Like, you can't tell, right? Maybe I'm the only one who can't tell. Maybe you can tell. Okay, Isabel's shaking her head. No, but I just can't tell. This is more of a confession than, than an exhortation to you. I understand that. But uh, maybe if I did it, a lot. Maybe I could start to understand it. I could probably do that with coffee. I could probably tell you different coffee. Oh, this is Ethiopian. Oh, this is Colombian. Um, I mean, not to brat, but what, I mean, whatever. I could probably do that. Uh, I can't tell the difference between, you know, sharp jack cheese and Mexican cheese and, yeah. You know the Mexican blend where, yeah, whatever. It's all the same. It all comes from cows, right? Um, the reason I can't do that is because I've never really practiced at it. Um, the sad thing for many of us is, and I think the thing that I want you to take away from this point is many of us can't do that with what the world has to say. We can't even distinguish like what's real, what's not real, what's true, what's false. Just some examples for you, for you to think through. Um, are you able to explain the difference between justification and sanctification? Are you able to explain the difference between that? Getting saved and growing in grace? Because a lot of people get that confused. They think, oh man, you know, sanctification comes first. Or they think that, you know, justification is just some process of you getting better. Are you able to know what that is for yourself and then explain it to people? That's a hugely important reality. Are you able to talk to people about what the Bible says about sexuality or gender? Are you able to do that? Or is it just, oh, well, the Bible says this, and I don't know why it says that, but this is what it says, right? Are you able to move on past just saying that's what the Bible says to be able to explain this is why the Bible says it, right? Again, not saying that referencing the Bible as their authority is wrong. It's the right thing to do. But are you able to, like, have a conversation with somebody and explain why that's true? To understand something deeper than just, I don't know, it's, it's just what it says. Are you able to talk to somebody who does not believe Jesus is God? And point to scriptures where Jesus talks about, yeah, this is, this is who I really am. Because most people in our world believe Jesus is a good teacher. Most people you'll talk to at school are people who think, yeah, he's a cool guy, moral teacher, I guess, but um, he's not more than that. Are you able to talk to them about that? Are you able to defend the inerrancy and the inspiration of scripture? Right? Do you know what even those two phrases mean? Inerrancy, that it's perfect, that it's, it, it never errs. And inspiration, that that means that God is the source of the Bible. Are you able to point to scriptures that talk about that? I mean, I know that might seem far off and distant, but every single Christian that I know has had to have a conversation about those four things. The question is, are are you ready to do that? There's plenty of passages that talk about how the world wants to lead you astray. Just a couple for you to write down. 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3, talks about false prophets and false teachers who will arise and try to lead you astray. 2 Timothy 3, 5 to 7, talks about more false teachers. It says, these false teachers have an appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Avoid such people. From among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. And it's funny that he just gives that little illustration of the most vulnerable people are these older ladies who are burdened with sin. You know, if you were to take away the revenue that a lot of these false teachers get from older women who are burdened with sin and they they have shame and they have regret and they have need. And if you were to take their money away from a lot of the false teachers in the world, they'd have nothing left. That's their main target audience. The same thing is happening today. People are being taken advantage of. Are you able to see that? and avoid that. Are you able to see the false teaching and avoid it? Ultimately, Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven three, he says, I'm afraid that as the serpent has deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul was afraid of that for the Corinthians, and I'll just confess to you, I have the same fear for, for, for us in that. I have the same fear for True North. I'm afraid that there are things that will come into your life that will lead you astray. And for some of you who think you have some sincere and pure devotion to Christ, that you might lose that. Your thoughts will be led astray. Satan will work in a lot of different ways against you. Your pride will be leveraged against you. 
um, he'll use that to say, well, you're so great, you don't, you don't need to study anymore, you, you're, you've made it. Your anxiety will lead you to distrust God and his promises. You'll think, I know God said that, but did he really say that? You'll, you'll be like Eve, who was tempted with the question, did God really say that? For many of us, your lust will seduce you to believe, well, I can do what I want to do. It's not that bad. I mean, it's, at least I'm just doing this with somebody that I, I know and somebody that I love, so it couldn't be that bad. I know God doesn't like it, but you know that must not be my situation. It applies to everyone else, but not to me. Our selfishness will make us spiritually lazy. We'll say, you know what, I don't need to get up today. I don't need to read God's word today. I've been reading and I've been praying. But then like we talked about a couple weeks back from 1 Corinthians 10, he who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he falls. That's my fear for you, and that's Paul's fear for these Christians. And ultimately, I want this to be something that we all take to heart. What's the solution to all this, though? What's the, the fix? Verse 15 and 16 gives us the fix. How do we do all this? Well, the, the way that we do it, and the way that you're going to grow, the way I'm going to grow, is if we're truthing with each other. If we're speaking the truth. Not just blasting everybody with, hey, here's facts, here's this, here's that. But speaking the truth in love. Presenting God's truth to other Christians out of a place of love for them. Right? That's what verse 15 is all about. Point number three, I'd love you to write that down. I want you to speak the truth out of your love for others. Really simple. I want you to speak truth out of your love for others. You know, this passage is actually talking about Christian to Christian. So there are passages that talk about our, our, our witness to non-Christians. 1 Peter 3.15 is one of those that says we're supposed to be able to make a defense for the truth that's in us, and we're supposed to do it with gentleness and respect. So this is something that doesn't just apply to Christians, but I want to get to what this text is really trying to teach us. When it comes to your Christian to Christian contact, your Christian to Christian contact needs to be characterized by truthing in love. That's what it is. You go to a small group, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to be truthing with each other. You go to a sermon, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to be truthing. You go to a worship set and you sing, well, you're going to be truthing. You have Christian fellowship, what are you supposed to be doing? Well, truthing with each other. You sit down in small groups, you start answering questions and start sharing the truth. You have an accountability meeting with somebody, what are you supposed to be doing? You're supposed to be truthing. You go to biblical counseling for a problem, what's supposed to happen there? Well, truthing. Obviously, he says, make sure that's tempered with love. Right? Don't be the, you know, the heresy police and just want to crack down on everybody for every wrong thing they say ever. Right? A lot of things are accidentally spoken, but ultimately, you and I are going to be doing what we need to do when we're truthing in love. That's the means for growth. Ye- yesterday, it rained, and today, it's sunny. That's perfect weather for um, things growing, right? Rain, sunshine, that helps the plants grow. That's why you're going to see more weeds in your backyard um, in the next couple days because it rained and now the sun's out and now it's growing. Your body works on food and sleep and exercise. That's how you grow. Well, you know how we grow in crisis by sharing the truth and love. And my fear for us in True North is we don't take that seriously enough. That we do not take it seriously enough that our role and responsibility with each other is to share the truth in love. Here's why I say that. Because uh, in the Bible, God talks about a lot of things and one of the things he talks about is the things that he hates. Do you know the passage? where he says seven things that the Lord hates. It's in Proverbs chapter six. Seven things that the Lord hates. Let me read these things to you. If you're gonna list the things that God hates, what are the things he hates? Well, he says, there are six things that the Lord hates and there are seven things that are an abomination to him. So six and a seventh here. Haughty eyes. That means prideful looks at other people. Uh, A lying tongue. So number two of things that God hates that we do is when we lie to each other. And also, Hands that shed innocent blood. Well, that kind of makes sense why God would hate that. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. And lastly, a false witness who breathes out lies. And actually, that was the second last. And the very last one is one who sows discord among brothers. Uh, Two of those are about lying. Do you realize that in the list of seven things that God hates, two of them are lying? God hates it when we lie. And, And we might think, okay, well, you know, I'm not like a liar, I'm not like a chronic liar that I always lie to my parents about my homework or my schoolwork. Maybe you do. Maybe some of you are. And for those of you that do that, it probably is a sign that you are not right with God yet. 
Because if you are a constant liar, Revelation 21.8 makes it pretty clear that there's no part with God for a group of liars, right? It says that those who lie, their, their part and their portion is away from God in the lake of fire, right? So if lying is a characterization of your life and it's just your constant day-to-day, um, you need to be very careful. And we should tread lightly on having any kind of salvation assurance because um, that's not the character of a, of a Christian. But let's just say maybe you don't think of yourself as a chronic liar and you mostly tell the truth. Well, there's a question beyond just, do I tell the truth when I'm confronted? There's the question of, are you a Christian who speaks the truth into people's lives? Like, are you somebody who's ready and able to say, here's what God's word says. Here's the truth about this situation. Uh, Write this down, Proverbs 27, 6. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. It's better for you to present hard truth to a friend than for you to just say, oh, you're great, you're fine. There's actually a Bible word for that, to lie and be nice. Um, nice line, it's called flattery. Okay? It's used in the, in the Proverbs all the time. Uh, Proverbs 26, 28 talks about that. It says, a lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. Okay? Flattery, what's flattery? It's when you lavish some kind of insincere praise on somebody. Right? And ultimately, I'm afraid that in our group, that's probably our biggest danger. It's not that you're going to be an outright liar to everyone you meet, but my fear for you is that you'll be fake nice. I've seen a lot of that, fake niceness. It's not real niceness. It's not genuine compliments. It's lavishing insincere praise on people. And usually, flattery has a selfish motivation behind it to say, well, because I want them to do it to me. It's fishing for compliments from people by saying, you're so pretty, you're so amazing, you're so nice. And you do that maybe with the motivation of everyone saying it back to you. Oh, well, you're so pretty and you're so, I've never been told I'm pretty. So this is, this is maybe a more female example. But uh, to fish for compliments, that's a real thing. That's flattery. It's wrong. God says it's wrong. So some of us think, oh, well, I'll just be nice. I'll say things that aren't true, but at least they're nice. Do you realize that the text we just read, a lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. You're not helping them. You're, you're going to ruin them. You might think that's an overstatement. Well, listen to this. Proverbs 29.5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. It's like you're setting a trap for someone if you're going to be fake nice to them. If you're going to say things to them that aren't true, that are nice, amazing praise. Oh, you're so amazing. You're so, and if you don't really believe it, you're setting a net for your feet. And you can see how that would be laid out. It's laid out like this. All the people who, I've used this illustration before, but all the people that go on American Idol and think they're amazing singers because their parents have flattered them and said, you're amazing. And then they go and someone tells them the truth. It's like, no, you're terrible. You're a horrible singer. Well, flattery was the thing in their life that spread a net for their feet. They never would have gone and made a fool of themselves if they weren't lied to for years by their mama and their dada and say, you're so amazing of a singer. You're not an amazing singer, right? Um, Flattery actually ruins people. What I'm not saying is that speaking the truth in love looks like you putting everyone's sin on blast and showing everybody their sin. That's not what speaking the truth in love looks like. I know that because Proverbs 17:9 says, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. So speaking the truth in love does not look like this. Hey, I want to tell you the truth about what that person did. Did you hear what they did? Oh, I can't believe they said that. I can't, believe, that's not speaking the truth in love, okay? You might say, well, I'm speaking the truth, right? That's not what we're talking about, okay? Um, the Bible makes it very clear, that's wrong. You separate a matter, you say, did you hear what they did? Oh, did you hear what he said? Oh, did you hear what she did? Do you hear who she's friends with? Did you, well, you do that, you start to separate close friends. That's not speaking the truth in love. Covering offense seeks love. But in the end, uh, listen to this, this is Proverbs 28, 23, a good passage if you write down. Proverbs 28, 23 says, whoever rebukes a man, will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. It's better for you to speak the truth and love to somebody, even if it hurts. It's a better thing to do for you than for you to flatter them and say things that are not true. Speaking the truth and love is really hard. It's costly. It actually might be one of the things that make people not like you. If, if you're faithful to speak truth and love this year, some of you will lose some of your friends. Um, and that's how it goes but you need to be committed to not just speaking the truth, but to do it in love and say, I'm doing this because I love you. And if it's not embraced well, just realize that Christians were called to embrace it well. So as I preach on speaking the truth in love, I also want you to learn the other side of that and say, am I ready this year 
to have the truth in love be spoken to me? Am I ready to receive rebuke? Am I ready to receive confrontation? Am I ready to grow in Christ? Because ultimately, all these things are leading us to the question that we asked at the beginning. Are we going to grow this year? Our little kids have all these doctor's appointments at the beginning. When you go to the hospital, when you go home from the hospital, they want to see you the next day. So you have an appointment on the next day. It's a two-day appointment. Then they want you to come in uh, for a two-week appointment. Then they want you to come in for a one-month appointment and then a four-month appointment, then a six-month appointment. Do you realize I don't even remember the last time I went to the doctor? I don't have a doctor. Um, I should have a doctor. But you know when they say, you go to some you know, place and they say, what's your primary physician? I just leave it blank because I don't have one at this point. Um, I had a pedi- pediatrician like when I was a kid, right? But I, had, I don't want to write Dr. Wong's name down. Like That just seems embarrassing. Um, he doesn't want to get a call f- from a 24-year-old about, you know, some problem. So I just, I just don't, I don't have a doctor. Anyway, point is, my kids have a doctor because they, they see uh, Dr. Jones all the time, right? It's like, oh, we're going to Mission VA. We're going to go see Dr. Jones, right? Um, kind of sounds like Dr. Jones from Indiana Jones. Um, that's right. They see him all the time because they're so, uh, you know, vulnerable. And there's all these checkups that you need with these little kids. There's all these shots. There's all these, these things that they're supposed to take. When they're born, they put these like weird like um, drops in their eyes. And you're like, what is going on with all this? But it's all to help them and protect them because we love them. And, and the thing I want you to take away this morning is this might feel like a spiritual checkup. This might feel like going to the doctor. This might feel like there's a little bit of hurt, a little bit of poking, and a little bit of prodding. But I'm glad we're doing it on January 1st, 2023. Because it's pretty easy for us to look back and say, how did I grow since January 2023? How did I grow? When we, look at, when we look back in December or we look back next January, I want you to be able to look back and say, man, I started the year off right on January 1st. I took my growth seriously and I started speaking the truth in love and I started receiving rebukes well. I started growing to be more like Christ. I was doing that before, but I really took it seriously today. I want you to take it seriously today. Let's pray that God would help us do that. God, you're good. Your steadfast love endures forever. Your faithfulness endures to every generation. We thank you for teaching us the truth in your word, and I pray that we'd seek to apply it today. I pray there'd be situations today that might be difficult or uncomfortable, that we would speak the truth in love, that those of us who are good at speaking the truth would also learn to speak it in love, that those of us who do love but we don't know enough about the truth, that we would commit to study, that all of us would commit to be equipped this year. We know what you want from us is that we be righteous and holy and you want us to step into our ministry roles as mature and adult Christians. So I pray that this group would do that. I pray that you'd raise up good godly leaders from amongst this group who would lead many people in righteousness. I pray that you do that for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.